Hello to you and welcome to the Jewellers Podcast. This month we are talking to Tim Peel and he is the current president of the Gold and Silversmiths Guild of Australia. Uh, We are also joined by Kevin Hitchens, a former keeper of the punches at the Guild, who has a long history in pushing forward what the Guild stands for and what the industry needs it to be. Uh, We recorded this over the phone, so please forgive the talkback radio aesthetic. Um, And we'll start with Kevin giving us an insight to the history of hallmarking in Australia. A very potted history for everyone. About 1985, I actually won a competition where I'd represented Australia and I came back and I made a maker's mark with a map of Australia in it. Part of the process of that, I wanted to um, protect that image and I um, contacted what was Trade Practices, IP Australia, International Patents Australia, to register that trademark and I found the process incredibly cumbersome and with very few protections and I thought it was quite peculiar. Now, not long after that, probably about 18 months or two years, the... um, bunch of uh, or five or six eminent jewellers in Victoria and goldsmiths decided to start forming a club or a society or a guild. Um, yep. I was initially involved in the early sort of work to set that up and then sort of drifted out of it for a period of time. I think being married and having kids and all that sort of stuff, I drifted out of it. Then I came well, back yep. and I was, I was actually asked to be a member of that uh, organisation. I joined up um, and I still saw that the the benefits in marking and the provenance that are provided was something special as a uh, bespoke or a handmade goldsmith and I thought it was really a worthwhile cause. The mission statement for the Guild took a little while to formulate. Then sort of through a process of time, it was about the early 2000s, it may be end of 99, early 2000s, we discovered that the Australian standards that had been established in 1973 had actually lapsed. It had been a 25-year period where they'd never been ratified by industry. So Australian standards had this process where they actually lapsed them. We thought that was terrible. The Guild at the time, although I wasn't part of the actual committee, they set about trying to get the standards reinstated. Now, nothing actually happened. Uh, I came onto the Guild Council in 2002. Then in 2006, just by an absolute fluke of, of... coincidences and you know the planets aligning um, we had an opportunity to speak with Standards Australia about um, precious metal standards. Uh, yes, I flew, yes. to, flew to Sydney had a very very in-depth meeting the um, Martin Ferguson the then uh, Federal Minister for Minerals and Energy was there all of sure. Standards, Standards Australia it was quite a high profile sort of meeting um, and we managed to get a bit of traction they were actually quite impressed by this amateurish organisation. Um, I have to admit that I made the Guild look probably a bit better than it did at the time. Um, but this amateurish organisation and its principles and its strive to achieve this marking and, and re- um, respect and provenance and historical relevance in precious metals marking. From that point in time, we organised $60,000, which was the cost of having it done. That was matched by Standards Australia. Uh, the Precious Metals Kit Committee was reformed. I was actually the chairman and technical delegate on that committee. Yeah. Um, we had a series of meetings over about 18 months. These meeting, meetings had Jewellers Association, 
Consumer Affairs, NATA, the Testing Authority for the National Australian Testing Authority. Um, we had members of RMIT, all the universities from around Australia, and Consumer Affairs. It was actually quite a complex thing to set up. From that flowed um, CSO3040 uh, for standard for precious metals and marking, and also the standards for um, rolled gold and plated um, items in Australia. That was ratified by the industry in 2008. Um, and yeah, it sort of rolled along since then. The Guild is pr the primary uh, industry association that promotes precious metal standards and the marking and correct marking of work. For yep. some reason, the Jewellers Association find it um, a less than important topic because I think it's going to add a lot of expense to their members. Yeah. Um, and they just everything you've been saying so far sounds, sounds like really positive. Everything's going uh, going in the right direction, and everyone's on board. But there, there are there are a few uh, glitches along the way as well. There's a few uh, road barriers. Oh, look, as good an idea as it is, and as easy as it is to sell to some people. Others just rally against it. They don't seem to see the need for it at all. Um, the off-sided the comment is that, um, oh, the industry's existed for years without any standards. Why do we need them? You're never yeah, going right. to get them in force. You know, you're never going to get an SA office. You're never going to get this, never going to get that. Those negative forces don't see the positive point-of-sale aspect. I think for many small jewellers, the fact that they actually mark their work, have some provenance to it, have a historical reference by virtue of the date stamp, um, I think it's a very strong point of sale for most of us now. Yeah, right, and it adds that um, uh, an extra dimension to it that it, it has that date history. It, it adds a story almost to. I, I, I think with with uh, engagement rings and wedding rings, twenty first pieces. Um, you know, there's a symbolism behind those pieces, more so than just the value and all that, but there's a genuine symbolism there. And I think in some ways, having the piece marked by the maker and having the relevance of a date and a registration of quality, which is what the stamp is all about, I think that adds to the symbolism and makes the piece even more special and more important to the individual who gets it. Especially as the generations pass in between. We're finding um, quite often stories of pieces that have come through families down several generations now, not Australian marked, or if they are Australian marked, there's, there's not that long-standing provenance of history to be able to trace like the yeah. kid now has. But we often see British marked pieces that we're able to tell people you know, where and when it was, um, was made or, or yeah. bought and that becomes a, an even more important thing to them to the point where they're actually trying to preserve these pieces rather than destroy them and, and start again. Sure, yeah. and that, that adds um, value to it. So in the future, when it's on the antique roadshow... Both sentimental value and, and real value as the yeah. pieces get older, that now they get so much rarer, and especially as, as makers retire and go by the way. Yeah, there will be no more of this person's work, so therefore those that are out there become so much more collectible. Yeah, and, and where, where did you come into it, Tim? When did you start uh, taking more of an interest in... Uh, to be honest, I, I took a lot of interest in this 
fairly early on, but felt I was not of a standard that was warranted for um, being a member of the Guild. Sure. Um, circumstances changed when I met Graham Kellett, and Graham started encouraging my um, application. I, I pursued that for a time, and then circumstances got in the way, much like Kevin, their family, etc. Yeah, sure. Um, yep. 2007, I, I did finalise that membership and um, joined the National Council in 2013 and now have the, uh, the dubious honour of its presidency. <laughs> and what does the National Council do? The uh, National Council is essentially the, um, the executive body that manages the Gold and Silver Smiths Guild. Um, so it's an incorporated body and we are the executive or the committee of management. Um, yep. And we're supported uh, by state representatives within each individual state because we're such a, a broad organisation and, um, and yet focused mostly in Melbourne. This is where it began and at, at the current time the council meets physically. Um, now these teleconferences can be awkward. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that... Got a bit of real life happening in the background. What we're, <laughs> what we're doing now, is, I suppose, is you know, Kevin was so heavily involved in the, the standards being reinstated and, and giving them so much more prominent provenance and value. Um, yeah. Now, what we're doing as a national council is we're trying to pursue public awareness, yeah. a much greater public awareness of, of what those standards are and, and what the Guild stands for when it represents those standards and, and marks to those standards. And as Kevin said earlier, it is very much we're seeing with the, the globalisation of the jewellery trade along with all the other trades mm. is the, the importance to many people to know where their goods come from, where they're made. And, and yeah. they do, a lot of people do place a lot of value in things other than how cheap a bargain it was. Because at the moment in Australia, there's a voluntary code of practice. So with that, it is a case of of needing to educate the customers instead of sort of asking that's, that's the government. That's where we're coming <laughs> from as a guild at the moment. At, at this very point in time, it's about if we raise public awareness of the standards and yeah. what they can rightfully expect to see on a piece of jewellery or a precious metal object... Yeah. Um, so that they can question if it doesn't have it. And then that in turn leads to greater uh, understanding of the value of those standards and working to those standards. So the, when I was talking to you before, Kevin, you were talking about the a time in France between, is it 1978 and 86? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. When they were, I know you're a dates man, when they were uh, promoting gold jewellery as uh, couture? Yeah, they, um, what, what I was referring to in that previous comment was the fact that um, Australia's pursued the need for a assay office and hallmarking from different angles. It's always been the industry trying to push it and tell, I don't know, the rest of the industry that this is essential and that's never worked. In France, they went about it a slightly different way. They actually produced a marketing campaign that generated a lot of wheel spin with um, customers, and the consumers were the ones who demanded, in the end, that 
the articles have stamps on it. They wouldn't purchase gold products unless they were, you know, from France, manufactured and designed. And the yeah. way that one of the ways that they achieve that um, that sort of prominence was by using um, sort of hot couture style to it all, where they made it seem so much more important and so much. Um, the, the speciality and the individuality of it all was based around the fact that it was um, a special designer handmade piece in France by people, artisans and craftsmen with you know thousands of hours of experience. It's something to think about in terms of um, individually um, talking to our customers and also as an industry, like looking part, back on sort of certain aspects of history, what the French are doing, what the French have done, what the English have done, and and picking what's right for us, because there's, there's also, um, you know, a bit of pushback on the need of an assay office, for example, because because of oh, the no, added, added uh, you know, sending it off four days, um, get, you know, paying for it, these, sort of, these extra sort of costs. A, a, a lot of us who a lot of us who've really studied hallmarking and the hallmarking act in the UK, we see that as a pinnacle. But that is a six hundred year old tradition, you know, it was started in thirteen forty seven by one of the kings. Now you've got six hundred years of tradition rolling along there. You've got yeah. assay officers that have operated, you know, in various forms from about um fifteen forty, uh Birmingham seventeen seventy two, you know, like all those assay officers have a long history. Then that history was further backed up in 1973 when the true uh, Hallmarking Act was passed in the UK Parliament where it was a compulsory item to sell precious metals in the UK. You had to have it hallmarked. There are still some ways to get around it. There's one notorious manufacturer who gets around it in one way. But, um, yeah. You know him, uh, Yeah, Everyone knows of him. There's no doubt about it. You know his name if I mentioned it. Um, <laughs> But but he sells incredibly exclusive pieces that he doesn't want released to an assay office, and he just chooses not to describe it as precious metal. So oh, wow. um, yeah, he just doesn't describe the, uh, the the manufacturing or the mount at all. It's usually the gemstones that are described. So he gets around it in that fashion. But um, we don't want to encourage that. <laughs> but 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 the assay office. Um, it requires an act of parliament, so you need parliamentarians to be on side. Now, we've seen how difficult it is, which is something like, you know, same-sex marriage or, you know, you can name any of the gals, you know, the gas, you know, the supply of essential services yeah. in Australia. You, you just can't get politicians to agree on anything. So although I naively but enthusiastically in 2007 waded into precious metals and having the standards written in a legalised format so that they could be adopted and enacted by an Act of Parliament. Um, it was really folly to think that that was ever going to happen. Um, historically, it has been tried three times in Australia and it's never got through, it's never got up. Um, politicians just don't see the need for it. Um, most of the industry don't see the need for it, quite frankly. As you say, they rally against it with that turnaround time. The, the 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 best thing that we could hope for is some sort of broad scale acceptance by the industry to mark pieces. Um, one of the things that was essential, and it's often overlooked, I actually forgot to mention it to you the other day, the the standards also provide a degree of protection for the images that we use. 
So although we have this funny 750 symbol on the inside of a ring, that's not registered anywhere other than with the Standards Australia. So it's considered to be an industrial mark, therefore it can't be copied or trademarked or used by another company or corporation. So the, the standards, as much as people bemoan them and a lot of the industry don't understand why they exist, they're very a very important protection for those images, for the, the, yeah. the punches that we put on the inside of a ring or a pendant or a precious metal article. The, um, the other thing too is that over time, as Tim said, as time goes by, you can actually see the importance of that um, date stamping, where the relevance of a piece, when it was made, who it was made by, all of a sudden gains some importance. Um, it's a bit, I, I look a bit at a little bit like the famous painters, you know, it wasn't until Picasso died that his work was really appreciated, you know. Van Gogh had, Van Gogh had to be dead 30, what, 35 <laughs> years, I think, before yeah. he's his paintings were worth more than what they were painted on. So, you know... It's part, part of the fun with those markings as well is the decoding of them. For, you know, what does, what does this letter mean? Is that the date? And so it's almost like a Tom Hanks from that film. <laughs> what is that? That, that, was the, that was an initial principle that I applied when we were looking at the precious metal standards was... If you were an educated and informed but an ignorant client and you had a look on the inside of a ring and you see these little marks in there, where do you go to find out about them? Well, in Australia, there was nowhere to go. There was no government institution. There was no quasi-government institution like standards. There was no industry association. There was nobody who really had any sort of handle on what those marks may or may not mean other than the registered valuers who at times were a bit left in the dark by some of them too. So part of the standards, you know, was to define exactly what the elemental border was around a, a mark and then to adopt a marking system that was unified. That was why we went for the millesimal system, which is, you know, 750, 750 parts gold or 925, 925 parts silver. We went for the millesimal system because internationally it is by far the most used system. We still had pushback in 2008 about using the word carrot. People go, oh, no, no, should always describe it as carrot gold. And we went, no, well, it's just not done. It's not done in anywhere in the world except America now. Um, carrot gold is just a thing of the past, even in the UK, where we sort of had our traditional base from. Our base is really United Kingdom um, for many, many years. Now it's Asia, but it was United Kingdom. And um, that was a carrot system, but you know, in 1973 they threw that out and they've adopted the millesimal system since then. So yeah. we were very careful to make sure that whatever we worked into the standards in 2008 were best practice at that point in time. Now part of the, the credence that I give to the quality of the work that we did in 2008 was about a year and a half later, Sidjo released their blue book. Sidjo are the um, confederation for um, international jewellery. They always had a blue book for the standards for pearls and the namecula for um, gemstones and they decided to do one on precious metals and they basically adopted the Australian standards. They were yeah. satisfied that that document was as worldly as, as good as it could be and a gentleman by the name of Michael Alkin, he was the then CEO 
and chair of the Birmingham Assay Office and he praised the work that we had done on those standards and they actually made some minor amendments even to the Hallmarking Act based on a couple of things that we had done. So yeah. we, we sort of held that document up to quite some esteem. Um, why the industry has failed to you know, grab it with both hands and run forward down the hill, I don't know, but anyhow. So I think you nailed that one on the head already, Kevin, with um, perceived added cost and, and um, no perceived benefit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Guild has a sales job still ahead of it. Now, this, this, is, this is why our role now is not just maintaining the standards of, and the work of our members, but also making sure that that system becomes wider known and the public awareness is greater. Yes. Yeah. And when, when did you um, become involved hev so heavily with the Guild, Tim? 2013, I, I joined the National Council. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, essentially it's a, it's a massive, massive job yeah. raising public awareness across the country yeah. um, <laughs> for a, a, what's essentially a very, very small organisation with a very small budget. There's no real sort of central focal point for, uh, for consumers. When 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 it comes to jewelry, there's 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 quite a, like if if you're uh, just someone looking to buy something, googling it is is quite difficult to. Yeah, to where, where do you go to get some reliable and trusted information? Yeah, yeah, yeah very much so. And we not, not the internet, Jim. Not the internet. <laughs> <laughs> we do receive inquiries via the internet when people find us. Um, yeah. but that, I wouldn't say that was on a regular basis, certainly not on a daily basis. Yeah, um, yeah there, there, there is no central point. And this is something that um, the advent of an assay office or, or some other sort of more central legal body um, could actually start to provide. Yeah, absolutely. That's time and, and legislation. <laughs> yeah. and we've already gone over that ground. The Birmingham Assay Office, they actually got into trouble in about, oh, about 88, 89, somewhere around there, because they started to advertise what the marks were. And it was actually um, a hidden clause in their charter that, you know, you're not allowed to advertise about the stuff, you've just got to do the job. And um, they spent many, many years, actually Michael Holchen, who I mentioned earlier, he spent many years trying to get that removed and eventually it was. And now they can actually advertise, they have a newsletter, they promote precious metal marking to make sure that it does occur and that the consumers are fully aware of what it is. So just a, it's an interesting little aside that, that even as good as the British system was, there was still some constraints about what even the assay officers could and couldn't do. Um, well, that's, that's what happens when you've got a 600-year-old institution made of yeah. rules over 600 years. You don't know which rules you're going to be breaking. Well, that wasn't the 73 law, presumably. Uh, yeah, I think it was more a bunch of um, yeah, fuddy-duddies who didn't really want you know any, <laughs> anything other than absolute control to be in one certain area, and they they wanted the control. Yeah, that's a common problem, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The broader the broader promotion within the industry is one thing that the guild tried to do initially, and as Tim said, it's probably better to take it to the public and make the yeah. public push the industry because most industries don't act unless it's it's by the hit the pocket, you know, unless the public demands something. But one advent that has occurred recently, which is much better for the communication within the industry, is the Facebook groups like Young Jewelers Group. Um, you know, they really have generated a lot. Um, when I started in the industry, we had 
probably 45 workshops all within the proximity of about three floors in a building. Now, none of those workshops would share ideas or talk to one another. It was very, very insular and closed and protective. One of the greatest things that I've seen is the sharing of knowledge amongst tradespeople and the the openness and the willingness to help people. Um, you know, you do have a bit of a chuckle sometimes when you get the same question asked, you know, 50 times in a row. Um, <laughs> But you have to realise that it's a new person, it's a new apprentice, it's somebody who's just experiencing this difficult of difficulty for themselves the first time. Getting but to their first CAD CAM point. Uh, <laughs> no, no, don't, don't mention CAD CAM to Tim or I, but that's what I'm <laughs> but, but it's just, it's wonderful to see that there's this freeing up of knowledge and a much better form of communication within the industry. Um, for, for all the sins and the faults and the problems of Facebook, um, I think it's one of the really beneficial things that has actually occurred within this industry. And I, can see, and I can see it if it was being used in another way where the, that information can be, be imparted or used in, in a constructive way to advertise to the broader audience, yeah. to consumers as well. I think, Kevin, for that we have really to probably thank the administrators of that group that have actually turned it into the positive and strong forum it is. Absolutely. There is a tremendous feeling about that. Um, for some of us old blokes, like I go back to about 84, 85 when I was on some of the state training boards and that and trying to get apprenticeship training you know, changed or modified or have some input into it. And there was just this real reluctance to get anything done or to share ideas or to even just agree on the simplest of concepts, which were fundamental and ideal. But they just, you know, there was always a, a stick in the mud or a fly in the ointment or a spanner in the works, whatever you want to call it. But, but these days, I don't see any of that. I see this fantastic sharing of information, support, um, you know, and a lot of people are very proud to share their knowledge and to encourage these new kids, these new jewellers and young jewellers coming in and carrying forward what they did you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's a fun yeah. part of the week now to have a look at whatever they call Photo Friday, you know, yeah. just to see what people post and the way they've gone about solving a problem yeah. or the piece that they've created and it's inspired them and their clients are really happy and it's just yeah. it's a really positive and wonderful thing. A lot of them actually take some some time out of their day to 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 do it to share. To, yeah. I, I concur and heartily support Tim's um, thanks to the administrators of the Young Jewelers Group. Like this is an unsolicited plug for them. I haven't been asked to do this, but those, <laughs> those, those guys must spend an enormous amount of time. Like I know what it takes to put up three or four images and you know a couple of bylines and a hashtag here or there. And it's quite frankly a pain in the backside. Like how those guys spend the time they do to administer the site, keep it neat and tidy, yeah. keep everyone sort of rowing in the same direction. It's, a, it's an enormous task and really well done. Really well, well done. Yeah, and also it's a social enterprise. So I, I don't think anyone's got any fears of plugging it because there's no business money making. They're, they're, no, they're no, volunteering no. their time. It's you know? purely volunteer, absolutely. Nobody's yeah. making a, a profit or a gain out of it, I don't think, at all. Not it all the more commendable. What I was going to say before is um, it's interesting that we, we all seem to be at different stages 
of understanding the rules and wanting to change things and and stuff like that. So I, you know, when, when I sort of did this, I was, I was young and naive. And I'm like, I'm going to change world. We're going to march to Canberra and demand our changes. <laughs> and whereas Kevin's like, oh, you know. They, they, they don't listen very, <laughs> very much. Kevin's but, been there and he's probably a little battle-weary. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I've been battle-weary and I've recovered from that, Kim. Don't worry about oh, that. Oh, good. I'm now old enough and pragmatic enough to realise that, you know, as well-intentioned and as important an issue as it is to us, it just really is not to those who are going to make the decisions yeah. on our behalf that could force yeah. the change across the whole of industry. Um, the government, and it doesn't matter what flavour, um, it just doesn't see the necessity in this. I think, I think if there was ever that point in time where they decided they could control, they could get an extra tax, they could make an extra five bucks themselves, there'd be some point in doing it. But there's just, I've been through that many machinations, I've done that much research on it, that I realise it's just not likely to happen. And the only real catalyst is bound to be industry push, broad industry push. Yeah. Not not just skilled, but right across the whole spectrum of jewellery and precious goods and what have you. Yeah, exactly. It, w it would actually need to drive from precious metal resourcing, so the industry that actually extracts gold, and it is their second largest export, remember, so that, that sec section of the industry all the way through to finished products that we produce, but it would need to be a complete, an absolutely complete industry-wide push yep. for, that would drive it. for the need. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting angle because we're talking about the sort of voluntary code of conduct mm. and educating consumers, but there's also an education of the voluntary code of conduct. Like, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we do many of us take the opportunity when it pops up to uh, you know, to point it out or to uh, politely suggest or whatever it may be. Yeah. But it's it's um it's just a long, slow process without some legal enforcement or legal backing to it. Yeah. We 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 have a mantra, you know. Please mark your work with the only historically relevant and Australian standard back precious metal system in Australia. You know, it's just a mantra. Every time you just peel it out, you talk to people, you ask them to please mark your work correctly. And, you know, if you're a member of the Guild, make sure you put all the provenance stamps in it to prove who made it, to prove your you're registered right. maker, and, you're, um, and you've dated it so that you know when it was made. And as Tim said, in the right order helps. Yeah. <laughs> You've, you've signed an agreement when you became a member that um, you would use those marks and use them in the right order. If the industry was to become more as one mm. and the government isn't helping, you know, sort of the old ask not what you can, your country can do for you but what you can do for your country, yep. uh, how, how do you see sort of a, a positive change or... Uh, moving forward occurring? Obviously it would require some sort of um, a legal structure and, and a set of rules that are legally binding as yeah. how, how it's marked and you know, if not an assay office initially which you know, could obviously incur quite a significant amount of cost to, to implement um, maybe something that starts with um, say flying inspections 
Yep. So you've, you've got a few people that will just randomly turn up in various cities, stores, workshops, what have you, and do random testing. So you, know, you increase the chance of being busted if you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that might be one thing that would be a, a step along the way. Um, yeah. But short of throwing probably quite a lot of money at it and, mm. and a hell of a lot of promotion to start making things happen. Um, but yeah, as Kevin said, yeah, the, the political will's not there unless there is some significant gain to come from it. Yeah. Um, that could be quite some time away. Starting a conversation and uh, encouraging more people to to uh, to do the voluntary code of conduct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, starting the conversation is is absolutely critical. You know, and perpetuating the conversation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I've, 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 I've always looked upon it. You've been this conversation for a while, hey? I, <laughs> I've, I've always looked upon it from the point of view that what I would really like is a really, really good, large, expensive, huge dollar case of undercarroting or, you know, swap diamond or whatever else to actually proceed through all the courts yeah. and to hold that up, to use that as an example, you know, where somebody was actually prosecuted. And, you know, there was this test case for saying that, you know, this is going to happen, this will occur over and over again unless there is, you know, a better system within the industry and the industry is therefore better regulated. But it never occurs, you know, whenever anything occurs in that manner where it's taken to court, it's usually settled out of court or well and truly before it's up. A problem for either party, and um, yeah. I use I use the resources of Standards Australia Legal Department to try and find test cases. Uh, we search through four states and oh, I don't know, thousands and thousands of legal documents, and we could not find a clear-cut case where Consumer Affairs had brought a prosecution of undercarrying against someone, which is a great shame because if you had that one really good example. You could use that as um, as a bit of the club, you know. As Tim said, that would be the, the the point where you could actually suggest that a flying squad or testing or some sort of better regulation and regulator within the industry might be necessary. But unfortunately, in Australia, I don't think it is quite as big an issue as we um, we think. The other thing is that most of it occurs on overseas articles, and there seems to be a bit of as the French would say, salafi, they just go, oh, well, you bought it in, you know, whatever Asian country and it wasn't quite 18 carat and what did you expect? People just sort of blow it off. They don't really care that much about it, which is a worry. Yeah. And that yeah. includes the uh, the stuff that's brought in wholesale. Uh, oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, uh, it's being resold and, you know, it's almost resignation. Yeah. Yeah, right. Things about... And now, in, in terms of that as well, there's, there's, uh, aside from assaying, there's also um, uh, conversations about country of origin, all these standards. Um, but that's where the guild and guild marking your work comes in because it is a, a registered trademark that you're using that is very specifically denotes Australian made. You know, the, yeah. the, the guild mark along with your maker's mark and the date makes it very clear there's there's no equivocation at all. What we were talking about before, Kevin, was uh, about 
ethical standards as well, which uh, consumers do seem to have an interest in. Yeah, I, I've, I've often looked at the ethics thing and in some ways you scratch your head and go, oh my God, you people have no understanding of what really this means. But you can use ethics in a strange sort of a way um, to promote Australian precious metals articles because we would probably have the most um, ethical mining system in the world for precious metals because yeah, our mines are heavily, heavily regulated by the unions. We don't have miners dying left, right and centre. They're not working underground in 60 degree mines for three days on end or anything like that happens in South Africa. They don't get shot if they protest and demand for better conditions. That's one thing. Um, the other thing is that the mines, uh, from an environmental point of view, like although they're an ugly big hole in the ground and you know they chew through X amount of diesel every year and all that sort of stuff, they are forced by a, a, a system to produce um, an offset. So you look at the super pit in Western Australia, you know, 25 miles out of town, there's this massive great reforestation program going on. Um, the spoil heap, so after they've treated the retort and extracted the gold, the mullock or the waste that's left over, they have to go through a really careful rehabilitation program with those mullock heaps now so that they're not an eyesore and a blight on the landscape, but they actually do sort of, um, you know, allow them to plant trees and allow them to run salt bush and lambs and stuff like that on them. So, you know, in a way, the ethics, if, if the industry grasped it correctly, the ethics could be used to promote Australian precious metals as a much better precious metal than any other one in the rest of the world. And, and I think our industry could stand up to that quite clearly because um, I know most of the gold that's used in Australia is Australian mined. Um, the only exception I have to that rule is stuff like imported Italian chain and imported German yeah, chain. That yeah, would yeah. certainly have a content of European gold, which would be South African. Um, but, but yeah, in a way, I've sort of changed my opinion on some of the ethics and some of the um, environmentally green aspects of precious metals and the mining and the statements that are made, because I think the industry could use it to its benefit if it was actually sensible about it. And uh, something we, we were talking about last time, Tim, uh, was promoting to consumers to understand manufacturing processes yeah. and yeah. how everything is done and, and what, what, where, where we do you were, see that going? We were into recycling before recycling was trendy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jewelers don't throw out gold. We collect, <laughs> we collect it and reuse it. And yeah. um, yeah. It's some we, of the most ethical and, and most environmentally friendly stuff is, is what's remade. You know, Granny's old ring is remade. Yeah. But yeah all the scrap, you know, that is reused. It's not... Doesn't go yeah. to landfill or anything else. It's, um, yeah, right. I, nothing gets thrown out in my world's first recycles, you might say. A piece, yeah. a piece of jewellery is heavily recycled. You know, yeah. like I, I often see pieces and, and reset and redesign where those stones have been in and out of three or four different rings. Yeah, the rings been recycled. You know, as I said, I think jewellers were into re and goldsmiths were into recycling before it was a trendy thing and a and are now an environmentally necessary thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, it probably predates um, hallmarking full stop, English or Australian. Uh, yeah, well, that's definite, actually, because a lot of the Roman coins were remelted for their silver content. Yes, yeah, very true. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about 
your hopes, dreams. Ah, uh, look, I, I think <laughs> the future. I could certainly say I've laid them out pretty clearly what my hopes and dreams are for uh, yeah. the industry and, and for the guild. And um, if people want to talk to you, Tim, um, what, what's, what's their avenue? Like, how do they find out about the the code of conduct or what you're doing? I, I would, people want yeah, to help. A, a visit to the guild website where the, the Australian standards are there. That it, It's a, a visual document as well, so you can really clearly see it and, and make out what it is. Um, which is gsga.org.au. Yeah. Um, and we can be contacted through that, and, and we try to respond to those contacts certainly within a day or two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot there. The guild's constitution and bylaws are there, so you can see what, how those standards are applied to our members, um, and how hopefully someday they'll be applied to the industry broadly. Yeah, and what 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 do you think, Kevin? How, what, what's your hopes for the future? Oh, yeah, look, I agree with Tim. Go to the GSGA website. Um, the other thing with hallmarking in general is there's some brilliant resources throughout the world. Um, the Guild website has a lot of links to them. One is the Birmingham Assay Office if you want to understand the UK system. The other one, uh, I don't think many people realise, but there's 13 signature countries throughout the world to a thing called the Common Control Mark. The CCM is actually a system where countries who didn't have assay offices but understood the necessity for marking their metal properly and yeah. for the protection of those marks. The thing that I spoke about earlier, where 750 is protected, where 375 is protected, where those images and those things are actually supported by legislation so they can't be misused. Uh, then I think, you know, to have a look at the CCM, common control marking is very, very important. The World Gold Council also has some brilliant information on, um, well, the French system, the German system, the English, the Dutch. It gives you a fairly good knowledge base on all of that. Um, the other thing is, too, in America, uh, Alas has been producing a book on hallmarking and maker's marks. Um, there's two versions, two editions of that, and that book is an excellent reference just to sort of get a, a very broad brush understanding of what um, hallmarking really means, what the stamps on the inside of an article are, and, and the historical relevance to it all. And also the use in industry, because although we look at it from a goldsmith's point of view, maybe on a ring or a pendant or an earring, um, tinsmiths in America were using maker's marks. Um, silversmiths have used maker's marks for years. So the whole system of marking one's work and what that really means in a broad scale um, is very interesting reading and, and gives you a better understanding of what sort of all of us who bang on about it yeah, and have, have this sort of almost emotional response to it and um, why, yeah. why that's there. Yeah, it's it's interesting that. Yeah, the last thing I would like to add, Lindsay, is that in spite of a lot of what we've talked about, most of us in the industry, most of us hand-making work, actually abide by 95%, even 100% of the the Guild's rules and the Australian standards already. Yeah. The only thing that was really outstanding more than anything else is the use of the Australian standards protected marks. Yeah. That's, that's the one thing that is falling down most notably. So okay. It's really, it, it's not such an onerous thing. Most of us yeah. do it anyway. Yep. So, so, so you're talking about uh, the 
control, was it common control mark, the getting the correct 750. To use the correct mark, you know, for, for yeah. what's commonly known as 18 karat gold, it's, it's 750 in the double circle. That's yeah. the controlled mark. Yeah. You know, the, the, the sterling silver is 925 in an oval. Yeah. So they're the ones that, that, that's where the greatest resistance is to changing and yeah, right. it's where the, um, it, it, it's I'm where confused the well. changes can be made. Yeah. Because, you know, I've, I've got, I've got a 925, I, I deal mostly in silver and, and to be honest, I do have a 95 that is probably not <laughs> the right one. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, it wasn't something that occurred to me, yeah, you know. Yeah. So they're still imported into Australia and sold quite regularly. That uh, marks outside of the Australian standard. Yeah. And maybe that's another avenue that we can look at, at you know, reducing the availability of non-standard marks. Yeah. Industry support for the simplest of complex is one of the hardest things to achieve. I still don't know. I still don't know why. It bemuses me to this day. Yep. And they'll stand there and they go, yeah, it's a great idea where we think it's really good, but geez, we're not going to do it. Okay, thanks. We would be the lightest regulated industry in Australia. You know, like if they had to see what an electrician was required to comply with or a plumber and gas fitter or, you know, any other industry, you know, all the time. We draw so much. Um, the, the, the industry is um, such a wealthy one, as it were. You know, it's, it's an industry that people spend a lot of money in, and yet they don't demand that regulation. Yep. I think we just lost Kevin. Ah. Uh, farewell, <laughs> Kevin. It was great chatting with you. <laughs> but I think we'll wrap that up now anyway. Thank you so, so much, so. Tim. It's a pleasure, really Lindsay. Good to talk. And uh, Kevin, wherever you are. <laughs> I'll say thank you on Kevin's behalf. Thanks to Tim and Kevin for sharing their knowledge. I think there is some great info in there for whatever level you are at, uh, whether you're just starting out and need to know how to mark correctly, if you're a bit further along and feel you want to add that value and history to your pieces with a maker's mark or are doing all of this and maybe have ideas of where we can go next. Um, the Jewelers podcast is on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Like us or follow us here or subscribe to iTunes and never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next month. Goodbye.